You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be interviewing author David Fisher, one of the authors, along with Dan Abrams and Fred Gray, of the book Alabama vs. King, Martin Luther King Jr. and the criminal trial that launched the civil rights movement. David is the author of more than 80 books, including 24 New York Times bestsellers. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you for having me, Mike. Now, the trial at issue for our listeners occurred in March of 1956 in Alabama. And do I understand correctly, it was the first civil rights trial of Martin Luther King's career? That's absolutely correct. Well, you know, although the book is about the trial of Dr. King related to that bus boycott, Fred Gray, one of Dr. King's lawyers, who was only 24 years old at the time, is a central character in the book. For, for listeners who may not be familiar with who Mr. Gray was, can you fill us in? Well, I, I can tell you that when I started this project, when Dan and I started this project, we did not know who Fred Gray is and was either. And the more we learned, the more astonished we became. Fred Gray is a hero of the civil rights movement, so much so that three weeks ago, President Biden gave uh, gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Wow. Um, and Fred was one of two black lawyers in Montgomery, Alabama, in 1956, and um, one of eight in the entire state. And with Rosa Parks, his friend Rosa Parks, Fred and Rosa Parks planned the Montgomery bus boycott. They, uh, uh, when Rosa Parks was arrested, Fred became her attorney, her defense attorney. When Dr. King was arrested, he became Dr. King's uh, defense attorney, and in an extraordinary career, later went on to represent Ralph Abernathy, John Lewis, the Marchers in Selma, the Freedom Riders, um, you, yeah. you name a major civil rights case, and he was in the middle of it. Yeah. His, uh, it was his case that eventually overturned Plessy v. Ferguson. Right. And the fact that I had never heard of Fred was astonishing to me. And uh, when we reached out to him, um, he was a little dubious initially, but we have subsequently become friends, and one of the things about this book, and I'm going to um, kind of tote my horn a little here, in its review, the New York Times called this book a story for the ages, and really what they were saying was, this was Fred Gray's story. Yeah, it's a remarkable story, and, and I confess, having practiced for 34 years, I didn't know who Fred Gray was either. Uh, for those who might be interested in even more there is a, uh, a biography of Fred called uh, Bus Ride to Justice, or an autobiography, I should say. Now, let me ask you this, David. Many folks at this point in time may not understand how difficult it was to be an African-American attorney in Alabama fighting for civil rights in the 50s. Mr. Gray, as I understand it, was also a minister. But when this case got started, the city tried to get him disbarred and drafted into the military. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it, one of the important things about this book 
educate people and hopefully educate them in an entertaining way about the roots of the civil rights movement and what it was like to be a black man or woman in the 1950s. Um, I'll give you an example. And it's a couple of years earlier, a 20-year-old black man boarded a bus, put his 10 cents in the fare box, and the driver told and started to walk to the back where blacks were allowed to sit. The driver told him he could not go through the white section. He had to get off the bus and reboard at the back door. The man who had just gotten out of the army, just served the country, refused to do it and said, give me back my dime. The driver would not do it. They got into an argument. The driver called the police. The police came. They pushed the guy off the bus and shot and killed him. That was Hillard Brooks, right? That's that's the way black Americans were treated in the 1950s. Yeah. And that's, uh, um, and into that, Fred decided to be a lawyer. Um, I've asked him, the question I've asked him numerous times, and I've never really gotten a satisfying answer, is why when the law had been used against African Americans for so long, did he believe that he could use the law to change society? And, you know, he has said different things at different times. Mm -hmm. This is America, he said, um, proudly, I might add. Um, And he is someone who has had a just a, a great belief in the American legal system his entire life. Yeah. Well, let's, for, for our listeners, so we know we got a bus boycott coming. The bus, gets, is gonna get, the bus boycott's going to get started. But can you explain to listeners what the bus company policy was concerning seating so that they understand what people were protesting? The bus, every bus company was a private entity and was allowed to apply the laws pretty much its own way um, in all the southern states. In Montgomery, a bus was was the driver's own fiefdom. He could pretty much do anything he wanted. And bus drivers, by the way, were permitted to carry guns uh, at that point. Mm -hmm. And the the law was that black people had to sit in the back of the bus, white people sat in the front, and the driver could sort of determine how the middle was going to be used. But the law was so specific that if there were no seats in the back and black people had to stand and there were empty seats in the front, they were not allowed to sit in those seats. Right. And, and uh, um, the boycott, um, as I said, Fred and, and uh, Rosa Parks right. would meet every day for lunch. He was a young lawyer just starting out. She was working for the local chapter of the NAACP and trying to help him. 
Uh, she worked at a nearby department store. She was not allowed to eat lunch in the department store. So she would buy lunch and go to Fred's office to meet it, and they would discuss what they were going to do the next time somebody was arrested for refusing to right. give up their seat. Right. Ironically, a teenager was arrested, and Fred and Rosa Parks decided she was not the right person to make this case. And then, almost coincidentally, Rosa Parks was arrested herself, mm-hmm. and that's when this started. Okay. Well, and, and in the book, you all point out that Dr. King becomes the spokesperson for the boycott, and at the time of the boycott, he was, as Fred Gray writes in the foreword, quote, a little-known minister of a small, upscale church located one block from the state capitol, close quote. I wonder if I could get you to read an excerpt on how Dr. King came to be the spokesperson. I would like very much to do this. Um, Gray, Gray knew one thing was critical, quote, we needed a leader, a person who would be able to organize, motivate, and keep the people together. Now, the, by the way, there were two powerful black leaders in the community, but they canceled each other out. So, and mm-hmm. Joanne Robinson, who was one of the organizers, Robinson suggested the pastor of her church, the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Martin Luther King. Fred Gray did not know Dr. King who had arrived in Montgomery from Atlanta slightly more than a year earlier, and he remembers asking Robinson, why King? As she told me that night, he could move people with his words, and that's what we need. Excellent. Well, in the book, you make this point, and I think you touched on it already. This is really the trial and the coverage of the trial that introduces Dr. King to the larger world, right? Exactly. You know, there is a second Martin Luther King trial that was held several years later for income tax evasion, um, where they basically were simply trying to get him out of the movement, the white power structure. And that trial has been reasonably well chronicled, so much so that when we first contacted Fred Gray, for the first few weeks, he actually, we, he mistakenly believed that was the trial we were writing about. Mm-hmm. That was the trial people knew about. And when, when we made it clear to him, no, this was the trial we wanted to do, he was thrilled. Because he said, this is, this is where it started. Yeah. This yeah. is where the civil rights movement started. This is where Dr. the concept of Martin Luther King leading a great movement was born. And right. uh, it, it started in that little meeting with Fred and Joanne Robinson and um, several other people. And Dr. King was not there when he was appointed the leader. <laughs> well, you know, in the book, uh, you, y'all do a wonderful job of covering most of the witness testimony at the trial. And I was, of course, struck by the fact that the African-American witnesses often confounded the prosecution with the way that they answered questions. In fact, I think one witness, I believe he's a minister, even refused to take the formal oath. Can you put this in context? And you do in the book, 
uh, at the context of the times, what it was like to be an African-American having to respond to white Americans on a day-to-day basis and then being able to respond in the context of the trial? Well, one of the things as a writer that I visualized as I was reading the transcript and editing and picking and choosing what we were going to use is for almost all of these people, this was the first time in their life that they were able to look a white person in the face and say anything they wanted to say and know there would be no repercussions. And the testimony ranges from extraordinarily poignant, where people were crying hysterically as they told their stories, uh, to uh, uh, accusatory, you did this, to arrogant, to even a, a kind of fooling with the prosecutor. I mean, Dr. King, he was accused, basically what happened, let me explain what the trial was. When the boycott, no one believed this boycott could be successful. It started as a one-day boycott. And when it worked, it was expanded. And there were 40,000 black citizens of Montgomery. And the vast majority of them used the buses every day. In fact, 80% of the ridership of the buses on Montgomery was black, even with those restrictions. And an organization was set up, I mean, literally overnight to arrange transportation for 40,000 people. Uh, And they needed someone to head it. And so that's how, and Dr. King, the Montgomery Improvement Association, Dr. that's how he became the, the head of the MIA and then the head of the movement. After it was proved successful, the city of Montgomery began taking steps to try and stop it. Yeah, let me ask you, let me interrupt you and ask you about that, because it seems incredible that you could set up a system in so short order to transport thirty or 40,000 people. So tell us a little bit about what the city did to try to, to derail this process. Well, um, first, basically, people volunteered their cars. The MIA bought four vehicles with contributions. Um, one The head of transportation, his wife owned the largest funeral home in Black Montgomery, and so they used hearses to transport people, and all the funeral homes volunteered their hearses. So they literally set up a, 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 a mobilized, they, mo, they mobilized, mm-hmm. and the city began ticketing the cars. They made it illegal for people to carry other people uh, in a taxi-like way without a, a license. They did everything they could. And when none of that worked, one night they arrested 89 people. And they arrested them using an anti-labor 
statute that had been passed in 1921 to prevent boycotts. And so what the city was trying to do was force people back onto the bus. Right. One of the things, it's an ironic situation. When I first met Fred, and to this day, when I talk about a boycott, he talks about a protest. Hmm. Because boycotts were illegal, right. protests were not. And, and the statute that they actually applied if my memory is correct from reading the book, was a statute from like the 1920s involving coal miners, right? Yes, 1921. Yeah. And so they arrested one night, they arrested 89 people with violating this statute. And rather than having 89 separate trials, it was agreed they would have one trial that would be the model for everything that followed. And the person who was to be tried was Martin Luther King. Yes. And that, well, as we know from history, it was probably one of the worst decisions ever made. Yeah, by a prosecution. You're right. You're absolutely right. Now, and, and so, in answer to your original question about black Americans testifying, eventually Dr. King took the stand. And... Uh, it's an extraordinary listening reading his testimony is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Because he was a minister and he was in a position where he had to tell the truth but yet he had to uh, uh represent a scenario and so the way he skirted answer he answered every question. Right. But the way he answered at times was so clever, so funny, and and yet and you saw that in all of the testimony. Um, there's a little bit of testimony of somebody, um, a, a, a gas station owner, mm -hmm. who put, who was hired by the MIA to fuel the cars, and the attorney, the prosecutor, says to him, "What were you selling?" And he said, "I was selling gas." And he said, and they asked, what were you selling the gas for? To put in the cars. <laughs> and why were you putting, and, and why did they need the gas? To make the cars go. Yeah. You know, I mean, on and on and on, you could feel the joy and the satisfaction of these people. And with Dr. King reading his, t it's impossible not to smile loudly when you're reading his testimony. Yeah. Well, let me, let me jump back a little bit because I want the, re the listeners to get a sense of this. When the city finds out that this boycott protest is going to continue and they figure out what's going on, one of the things they did, if I read correctly, is they asked local or they got local insurance agents to cancel the auto policies of the drivers, correct? Absolutely. <clears throat> and they succeeded, but then Lloyd's of London stepped in. I mean, they did, they did everything. Uh, um, with Fred, for example, Fred was a minister. Right. And he was exempt from the military because, because of his uh, ministerial duties. Mm -hmm. And he, he worked at a church, and he uh, gave sermons at the church. This was not simply something on paper. 
He had been raised to be a minister and then became a lawyer. And so what the city did is the city got him reclassified 1A. Right. And then got him drafted. And it became a, because they simply wanted to remove him from this situation. Yeah, yeah. And the night before he was supposed to report for duty, literally the night before, General Lewis Hershey, who was the head of Selective Service, restored his ministerial deferment, and he was able to, to keep fighting. And, you know, besides what they did to Fred and what they did to try to derail the boycott itself, you also cover the fact that, uh, you know, they put a bomb. Some people put a bomb on the porch of Martin Luther King's house and exploded it, right? Well, there was there was all kinds of violence. Yeah. Um, there were, it was, Dr. King's home was, it was not the only place that was bombed. They blew the front porch off his house while his children were in the house. Yeah. Um, there were other bombs. People were shooting at the empty buses. Um, there were uh, um, cars were stopped. The threats uh, were amazing. I mean, you know, people were told if you don't come to work or if you're late to work, you're fired. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the um, there was a, a local army base which employed uh, a great number of black Montgomerians. And because of President Truman, the base was integrated. Right. And that was, uh, uh, it was Maxwell Field. Mm-hmm. And that was a godsend because so many people worked there, it made, you could get car cars full of people, and the buses, once you got to the base, the buses on the base were integrated. So people could work on, continue those jobs. But there were people who were known to board buses secretly and lay down, literally, black people, and literally lay down on the floor so they couldn't be seen uh, going to their job working in, in white uh, white homes. Mm-hmm. There also were white people who participated in trans secretly participating in transporting black workers, um, and there were uh, a couple of black white ministers who became very active in yeah, the boycott. Yeah, yeah. Now, at one point during the trial itself, um, the United States Supreme Court ruled in another Fred Gray case, right, the Browder case that um, segregation on buses was unconstitutional. And I found this incredible. But the local Alabama judge hearing the case basically said, well, that doesn't apply to us, right? Well, that is a great a demonstration of the brilliance of Fred Gray, um, the legal brilliance of Fred Gray, who was convinced from the very beginning that... The only way to really get rid of segregation on the buses was on the federal level, that they would do everything they could in the, uh, in the city and state, but it would require the federal government. So very soon after 
this trial began, Alabama v. King, Fred filed uh, another case um, using four women called Browder v. Gale um, uh, to prohibit uh, um, segregation on buses using partially, at least, Brown versus the Board of Education that outlawed segregation in public schools and had been decided a year and a half earlier. While that case was winding its way through the courts, Dr. King was convicted in this case, and, and Fred appealed the conviction. And in an accident of history and timing, while the appeal was being heard, and it did not look good for Dr. King, and by the way, this was a serious offense. Mm-hmm. This was a $5,000 fine and as, uh, as much as a year in prison. So this was not a joke uh, or a slap on the hand. And the judges were going to punish Dr. King. There's no question about it. Um, and they had the morning session of the appeal of his conviction. And as they broke for a lunch and recess, there was a real clamor outside. And Fred went outside to see what it was about. And the Supreme Court had issued a ruling outlawing segregation on Montgomery's buses and essentially overthrowing Plessy v. Ferguson, Mm -hmm. separate but equal doctrine. This happened literally during the lunch break. And as you said, when they went back into the courtroom, the judge said, nah, I don't care. Unbelievable. That doesn't apply to us, which, of course, it did. Right. It it changed history. Yeah. Well, we're about to run out of time, but just so to wrap this up, you just touched on it. So at least in Alabama, for purposes of the trial, Dr. King was found guilty. Um, and what was his punishment? Well, I mean, it was, uh, he paid a fine. Right. I, I mean, a small fine, as did Rosa Parks, by the way. Yeah. I think Rosa Parks' uh, fine was $5. And ironically and wonderfully, they have now, within the last couple of years, gone back and the state of Alabama has overturned these convictions and thrown them out. Good, good. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Um, you've been listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and I've been privileged to speak with David Fisher, one of the authors of the book Alabama versus King, Martin Luther King Jr. and the criminal trial that launched the civil rights movement. David, thanks so much for uh, participating. Is there a website or a social media site that folks can go to to find out more about the book? Well, I, you know, go to Amazon, okay. and uh, um, you'll get a pretty good understanding of it. Good. Or go, go to your local bookstore. Yeah, I mean, it's, we, it's there. We always push local bookstores. Yep, yep, it's oh. there. Well, thank you again, David. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. It's greatly appreciated.